We did meet in high school and um, we started dating in college and um, got married. Life was good. You know, I have a beautiful wife, she's awesome. I have a couple little kids that, you know, are beautiful kids and they're great. And we got pregnant with our fourth child and thought, well, maybe this is a boy. We've had three girls, you know, we weren't, you know, I've honestly just taken health for granted. During the whole process of the pregnancy, Carrie went back for multiple tests and the doctors were explaining to us there's something wrong. She had cysts on her brain and was diagnosed with Acardi syndrome. And I went home and Googled it. And um, the first page that popped up said, in loving memory. And it was a page about children who died from Acardi syndrome. The stats were seven to 10 years. Uh, it was the average life expectancy of, of a young girl that has what Reese has. It puts everything in perspective, and it forces you to get on your knees. I mean, I just threw myself into the Lord's arms. Like, I just need you. No one else could make it better. Only he could. It was a very, very difficult time in my life, and obviously for Carrie. It was painful, and I have to say, I cried every day for a year. It was kind of what I was envisioning, you know, my life is going to be really sad. You know, and just the fear, you allow the fear to set in and, and, but when you break it down, it's more about, you know, God, what was me? Instead of, you know, God, you're the creator, you don't make mistakes, um, and I'm gonna surrender to that. And we both, Mario and I just grew, grew in our relationship with the Lord and with each other through that pain. Just the thought of, the thought of Reese passing away, at a young age gave me more of a passion for the lost and started the Death of Life Revolution in 2009. And so, you know, we launched this ministry in 2009 um, just to reach kids who, who don't have the Lord. Death of Life is an online ministry. We specifically minister to the unchurched, the kids that have never heard the gospel. We focus on evangelism and discipleship and it's all technology-based. My buddy Brian Head Welch, who was in the band Korn, um, said it would be a good idea that I'd go on the show LA Inc. to tell our story about our ministry and about our daughter Reese. And basically what the tattoo is, it's Jesus' hand taking my hand from the darkness and the despair and the garbage that I was in during that time with the woe was me when we heard the news about Reese. And they guesstimated that over 15 million people watched that last episode and people all around the world, you know, saying, man, that, that show changed my life. And Reese has never said a word. I mean, she can't sit up, she can't talk, she can't walk. But her influence, I mean, it's, it's just crazy how God has used this little lady to impact so many people for him. So now we have a family of six. We have a child with special needs. You know, we have three older girls who just adore her. And, you know, they've gotten to watch us just really walk a, a hard road. And they do see families walking the same road without the Lord. And, and it hurts me. So I think it's important to enfold those people into our church community and let them know you're loved here, you're accepted here, your child is accepted here, and we want your child here. The focus is to get these families on the campus, expose them to the truth of Christ, 
get them discipled, and transform lives. It's the Great Commission. I mean, it fires me up. It gets me excited about the future and what's going to be happening in Scottsdale Bible. You know, is there anything more important? I can't think of anything more important than pointing the world to Jesus. Let's reach the lost, and then let's get out of here. You know, I mean, if she's going to leave early, you know, let's get done with what we can here, and let's go join her up in heaven. My name is Mario D'Ortenzio. My name is Carrie D'Ortenzio, and this, and this is, is our story. story. On, uh, on most days, I'm with Mario. Let's reach the loss and then get out of here. I, I love that line. I, I get these sent to me, you know, a few days before. And so I watched that thing like five times and I kept going back. Reach the loss, get out of here. I'm like, amen. And so I don't know what that says about me, except that I do long for heaven. And, and I also long to see God do wonderful healing in, in the lives of people here on earth. And we have lots of stories like that. God's on the move in His church, and so we like to show you stories. I met Mario and Carrie when I first moved here back in 07, and uh, they really are an incredible work of grace as they have, have continued to follow God in very difficult circumstances. And He's taught them a ton through little Reese and, and what's going on in her life. So now you've joined in a little bit on their journey and their story, and you can pray for them and, 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 and get to befriend them as well. They're, they go to our, our venue, I'm sorry, our, our, yeah, the venue on the other side of campus, usually at 9.30 or 11. Now, you know, part of our Compelled by Grace is taking our special needs ministry and expanding it tremendously. We're going to take the entire low, one half of the lower D building uh, in when we do our Compelled by Grace construction and commit that to our special needs ministry. So part of showing you this was also each week to give you a peek as to what we're trying to do with this and, and how the need really is great. In our special needs ministry, God has blessed us with quite some great resources as well as the ability to penetrate into our community with families that have special needs, and we just envision doing a lot more there. So that was kind of helping you to see that as well. I don't say this very often, but I, 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 what I'm going to talk to you guys about today is probably closer to my heart than anything else I ever talk about. Isn't that a bold statement? I, I, I really believe that. I'm not saying it's the most important message I'll ever give to you, but, but I, I deeply, deeply believe what I want to talk to you about today, and it truly is probably the closest thing to my heart and why I'm in ministry in the first place. So, Hang on to your pew. Let's all bow together and let's pray. Father, thank you for just the stories we get to tell and be a part of in this church of what you're doing in the hearts and lives of people. And Lord, that's really going to be the focus of today is to understand that the ministry and message of Jesus was one that simply was about helping uh, people find and know you. Uh, one life at a time. So, God, as we talk about touching lives right now, I pray that you might help all of us, Lord, to at the very least get on the same page as to what your word and the life of Jesus were about. At the very most, God, may we walk out of here in 35, 40 minutes understanding how great the need is and how you call each of us to roll up our sleeves and be involved in the lives of others. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So a movie came out a few years back, 1996 to be precise, that was written and produced by Tom Hanks, and the movie was called That Thing You Do. 
that thing you do. It was about a fictitious band back in the 1960s that was formed in a garage in Erie, Pennsylvania. And like most garage bands back then, they played in local talent shows and in roadside restaurants. But then this band called The Wonders wrote one particular song entitled That Thing You Do that was discovered by a record producer played by Tom Hanks in this movie. And this song touched a nerve in the burgeoning rock generation and started to rise and become a hit song. Within a matter of weeks, this band found themselves touring across the country, now playing at state fairs and at college campuses. And just a couple of months later, they had a top 10 record with their one song that they were singing, and they got whisked off to Hollywood where they appeared in a motion picture and, and appeared on an Ed Sullivan type show. But then the movie ends on kind of a Shakespearean note when the band is set to record their second song, and it's here where things begin to unravel. The bass player has now joined the Marines. The guitarist has eloped and is nowhere to be found. The lead singer is fighting with the record producer, Tom Hanks, on what this second song should be. And at one point, they're in the studio toward the end of the movie, and the lead singer has had enough with the record producer, and he quits. And that only leaves one band member left. And so Tom Hanks looks at this one band member and says, your band has fallen apart. To which this member responds, this can't be happening to us. We have a hit record. To which Tom Hanks responds by saying, and it's the line of the movie, you had a hit record. The one hit wonders a very common tale. And he was right. As you and I know, because we're of that generation, there were plenty of bands back in the 1960s in which we hear their songs on the radio. We remember that song, and we go, what band was that? It, really an unknown band that had one song and then kind of fizzled out. That happened a lot back then. You know, I fear sometimes for the evangelical church in America, I think there are some, if not many churches today, and tell me if this isn't true, that are in danger of becoming the one-hit wonders. But one of the things that I've noticed in the church over the last 30 or 40 years is that most churches today are trying to become cool. They're trying to become relevant. They're trying to become seeker-sensitive. They're trying to penetrate culture in, in a way that maybe they haven't done historically. And what I fear when churches start to get on that track, because there's nothing wrong with trying to penetrate culture, but when we start to get on that track and develop all of our ministries and all of our worship and all of our preaching and all of what we do along that line, I, I fear that we're going to be very substantive-less and that we're going to become in danger of being the one-hit wonders. I can remember reading just a few years ago about a church in Florida, this was in USA Today, that had on its marquee for all to see, and I'm reading it quote for word for word, 40-minute services, 20-minute sermons, in and out, we guarantee. <laughs> and I can remember kind of laughing as you guys were when I saw that, and then I was about ready to cry. I, I thought, is this really what the church has been denigrated to? 40-minute uh, services, 20-minute sermons, we guarantee, just to get people in? I, I just can't believe that that's what church is about. I read an article a few years back, a few, yeah, a couple years ago in Christianity Today that was saying there's like 10 phrases that are now so outdated that pastors shouldn't use them anymore. Phrases like cheers, where everybody knows your name, you know, and things like that. 
One of the phrases they said you shouldn't use in the pulpit anymore is that phrase that we all learned from that Wendy's commercial with that little old lady. Do you guys remember the phrase? Say it with me. Where's the beef? See, I still like that phrase. I don't know about you guys. I know it dates me and that people in their 20s are going, what are they talking about? You know, and they're probably going to YouTube it and see this old grainy pixelated video, you know, of where's the beef. But I think that's what happens many times with the church, amen? Is that people come to church and, and, and they experience an American church service and they see a lot of glitz, they see well-oiled ministries, productive growth plans, attractive worship music, engaging sermons, and then they're left kind of holding the bag. They're, they're left going, what just happened? And what's all this about? Kim asked me just the other day, it was kind of funny, I, she, there's a new church in town, there's lots of new churches in Phoenix, and one particular church that seems to be making quite a splash, she, she asked me what I think of this particular church. And I said to her, I said, well, you know, let me preface what I'm about to say, that, that any church that comes in the name of Jesus to town here, I'm for. I mean, I'm for every church that's trying to, to do something with the gospel. But I said, when it comes to this church, ask me in 10 years. I said, that, that, that's what I'll tell you. Ask me in 10 years. Because I've seen so many churches come to town, so many people come, and, and, and it's wonderful, glitzy startup, but, but only time will tell where the substance is. And, and that's what concerns me about the church in America. Now, 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 why is that relevant to Scottsdale Bible? Obviously, we just celebrated 50 years as a church this last year. And, and nobody would ever call Scottsdale Bible a one-hit wonder, right? That's not us. We have a wonderful track record of substantive ministry here in the valley and of helping people find God in meaningful, meaningful ways. And yet as we enter into the next 50 years of ministry with the prospect of a significant facility redesign, multi-site campus strategy, church planting, expanded international ministries, all the things that we've been talking about with Compelled by Grace, I'm telling you it is critical and crucial that we remind ourselves once again before we take one more step forward what our ministry is really about. And what is it that we're really trying to accomplish? And why would we dare do any of the things that we're suggesting that we do? So three things I want to share with you in our time remaining. Three things that come right from the life and ministry of Jesus that I believe remind us of what the heart of all of this is. And here's the first thing. And it's going to be arguably the most important thing I say to you this morning in all of its simplicity. And that is that it's all about God and people connecting God and people. You guys know how I think. I'm a reductionist, and I'm telling you, I reduce it to this level every moment of every day, or I would just get way too confused on what we're trying to do. It's all about people connecting God and people. And so here's what we need to remember as a church. As we go into Compelled by Grace, it's not about buildings, though we need some. It's not about money, though we're going to raise some. It's not about programs, though we have some. And it's not about committees, though gag me, we're going to make some. No, the reality is, is that all of this at the end of the day is simply about God and people, connecting God and people, both those that already know Him in deeper relationship and those that don't in a first-time love affair. That's exactly what we're trying to do, folks. 
If you brought a Bible with you, I want you to open up to Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. We're going to park in front of these pass- this passage this morning. And, and as you're turning there right now, the context is very, very simple. Jesus is in northern Galilee. We'll get to the significance of that in a minute here. And he's rather early on in his ministry. And Matthew wants to kind of get us up to speed and tell us exactly why Jesus is on this earth, what he's doing, what the heart of his ministry is about. So, if you brought a Bible, Matthew 9, verse 35, if you didn't, look up here on the screen and follow along as I read this. It says, And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them, because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, I want you to notice how this passage begins there in verse 35. It says that Jesus was going about all of these villages and cities in northern Galilee, and it tells us that he did three things that is really important for us to dial into. I put it there in yellow on your screen. He went teaching in the synagogues, secondly, proclaiming the gospel to all people, and then thirdly, healing every disease and every affliction. He taught, he proclaimed, and he healed. And you're going to want to dial into that if you're going to understand what Jesus' goal is for your life. So notice first that he taught in the synagogues. Jesus, as we all know, was Jewish. And synagogues in Jesus' day were places where God's people met on the Sabbath, which back then was Saturday, to hear God's Word being taught. They existed in almost every major city in Palestine that had Jews in them, which were a lot of cities. And so Jesus simply knew that God's Word was His divine will to humankind, so He wanted people to understand in their minds and then get it down into their hearts, God's truth, so they could begin connecting with Him. Now hang on to that and notice me secondly that then Jesus proclaimed the gospel. In other words, he told people, all people, convinced and unconvinced alike, how through himself the kingdom of God was now here and that people could know God personally and intimately through knowing Jesus. So once again, see the thread here, he connected people with God through explaining to them the role of the Messiah, Jesus, coming to earth and faith in him. And then thirdly, it says interestingly that he healed disease and sickness. In other words, he ministered to the physical and tangible needs and hurts of people and through this, once again, connected them with God. How? By communicating God's love and grace in tangible ways to them. So for you and I today, what we need to see is that Jesus met people in their pain. And he ministered to them in and through their pain. He addressed the immediate issues that were causing them stress and brought some relief. But then, as you'll see in a minute, he went to the underlying issues of their lives and why their lives had become such a mess. And in this, he drew them into relationship with the Father. So three foci, focuses, whatever, of Jesus' ministry here. He taught, he proclaimed, and he healed. 
I like how one old-time commentator says it. He says, and I quote, Our Lord takes men as and where he can find them. The religious by teaching them in the synagogues, the mass of people by preaching, presumably in public places, the sick by healing them where they are brought to him. In other words, folks, here's what I see, and you don't want to miss this. One life at a time. That was the brilliance of Jesus' methodology, connecting people with God and the Father, God the Father, constantly drawing them to Himself by teaching and proclaiming and ministering to their needs one life at a time as He encountered them or as they were brought to Him. That was Jesus' entire ministry growth plan. One life at a time, organically, as each soul he interacted with. You know, it's interesting. When you, when you read the Gospels, it, it's amazing that when you comb through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you realize that Jesus didn't preach all that many sermons on the mount. In fact, he preached one. Uh, he didn't preach all that many Promise Keepers conferences. He, he didn't preach all that many crusades. And, and Jesus never started a program. He, he didn't do all that many feedings of the four or five thousand know that the vast majority of Jesus's ministry was one life at a time. Think about all the stories that you know. A paralytic, a blind man, a Pharisee seeking truth, a sick girl, a short tax collector, a prideful ruler, a woman caught in adultery, a man possessed by a demon, two disciples arguing about who's going to be greatest in the kingdom of God. One life at a time was Jesus' methodology. That's how he touched people with grace and truth. And I would submit to you that it's brilliant. And I've wrestled with this a ton over the years as a pastor of an established institutional church. I've asked myself, well then why do we run programs? And why do we build buildings? And why do we have budgets? And why do we have committees, which I just run on record saying how much I love? Why do we have all of these things? And the only answer I can give, church, is that it doesn't mean that programs, buildings, committees, and budgets are bad, but what it does mean is that all of these things better be leading to touching one life at a time or we've missed the whole point. Amen? We've missed everything. Because the whole point of Jesus' ministry was not programs, buildings, budgets, or committees. It was all about reaching out to those around him one life at a time. And, you know, I learned this lesson when I first became a Christian when I was about 17, 18 years old. I was a freshman in college. And I've told you guys before that I had a very radical conversion. I was on fire for Jesus Christ. I mean, I'm on fire now, but back then, man, I was unhindered in my approach to people. I mean, everybody I met, if I didn't turn it into a conversation of the gospel, I felt I failed. So, so if you met me back then, I mean, you'd be trying to talk to me about sports, you know, and I'd be like, well, you know, how many walls are in this room? Four. That room, I was like, four spiritual laws, and I'd be off to the races. <laughs> and I did that in every conversation I could back then. And, and my poor fraternity, I joined a fraternity before I became a Christian, and halfway through pledging this fraternity, I, I became a Christian. And again, I was a Shiite Christian back then. I mean, I was really on fire. 
And, and, and so as I'm in this fraternity, I remember calling the guy that led me to Christ and I said to him, I said, Joe, I said, I, I want to save these 50 guys because, man, they're, they're heading for a Christless eternity and it's up to me. And, and they're having parties and they're drinking and they're chasing women and they're going no place fast and we, we have to do something about this. And I said, so I'm going to become the chaplain because I had this office called chaplain. I thought, perfect, I'm in. And I thought, you know, I'll start a Bible study. We're going to bring Josh McDowell to our campus. I mean, all these things that we were planning. And I'll never forget my, my campus life leader, the guy who led me to the Lord, said, Jamie, here's what I encourage you to do. He said, find one guy. Find one guy that's thirsty. One guy that, that you think is open and willing to talk to you about Jesus and slow down and pour into him. Befriend him. Take him out for a Coke. Talk to him. Spend some time with him. And, and allow God to organically drive that conversation. The very next night, I kid you not, I was at one of my fraternity parties. You know, they're all doing things that fraternities do. And, and I found one guy, and, and his name was Phil. And, and this guy was just drunker than a skunk. And I, back then, I'd share Christ with drunk people all the time. Now I don't do that as much because they don't remember it the next morning. But, <laughs> but I'm just like sitting there witnessing to Phil, and I'm talking about Jesus. And, you know, he's like, you know, blabbering on and on. And the next day, I saw him, and I said, do you remember our conversation last night? And he said... No, because I, who are you? And, and, and I said, well, we talked about this. And he said, well, you know, I, I, I am interested in spiritual things, and I am, I, I would like to talk to you further about that. Two months later, he became a Christian. As I poured into him and we talked, and we, we talked about Jesus and introduced him to Jesus. And that was my first lesson, folks. You see, here's the deal. In, in all my strategizing for the big Bible study and my desire to be the chaplain and bringing Josh McDowell, isn't it funny? Through all that, I never led anybody to Christ. None of that produced the fruit of just focusing one life at a time on an individual. And, and I could tell you story after story after story. So here's the point for you and me. As we enter into the next season of ministry, I, I think you guys are seeing it's not about all the outward things that you might see going on, even the changes. It's about touching lives, one at a time. So why are we building a new student or children's ministry center? So that we can touch children, say it with me, one life at a time. Why are we going to build a new teen center? To be really cool? No. To touch teens, say it with me, one life at a time. And that goes for everything. The chapel, the worship seats, special ministries, multi-site campuses, church planting. I'm telling you, church, this is not so we can be the best and brightest. This is so that we might capitalize on 50 years of ministry. In fact, here's what hit me this week. <laughs> this is great. I said to the first service, I said, how did most of you get here? Like, did you get here because we ran a crusade? Did you get here because we sponsored a Promise Keepers conference? Did you get here because of… No, you got here because my guess is is that one life at a time, somebody touched you and said, I go to Scottsdale Bible Church. That's probably how you got here. So one life at a time is what built this ministry over the last 50 years. My simple point is one life at a time is the only thing that can continue this on. Now, once we understand that, that the key question that some of you aren't thinking of right now, but you should, is why is this such an important emphasis on ministry? You know, especially some of you business-minded folks, you're thinking, but Jamie, I can think of a much bolder strategy than one life at a time. I mean, in business, if we did that, we'd go broke. I mean, you know, I, I can think of much more, more bolder you know, communal ways that we can reach people. Why one life at a time? And Jesus answers this question for us. 
And it's our second point this morning. It's found in verse 36 of our text. So before I give you the point, let me read for you the text and see if you can pick up on why one life at a time. It says, when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. In other words, here's why the need in each individual life is so great. That's why Jesus was moved to have a one life at a time ministry, because the need is so great. Uh, Let me explain. See, in all cultures, in, in all people, no matter where they might live, no matter what they might do, there's one thing that is universal to the human condition. Have you ever picked up on it? And that is, we're all fallen, every one of us. I have yet to meet somebody in this world who has escaped the fall of humankind in their soul. And to so say it more, to say it more crassly, we're all a mess. We're all messed up inside. We're all deeply fallen inside. And no amount of things or money or successful businesses or kids that turn out well or even healthy friendships can undo this. God has made it clear, and you and I bear witness to this, that we are a mess inside, that that there's sin and muck inside every one of us, and that that needs to be addressed. And all I simply need you to notice here is that Jesus, in verse 36, noticed this, he realized this, and no amount of charade or facade on the outside would convince him any other way. It says he had compassion. That word is actually a physical word. That word literally means to have the bowels yearn. You ever had such strong compassion or hurt for somebody that you actually had an ache in your gut? That's what Jesus is saying here. That's what this word means. He had an ache in his gut. But why did he have an ache in his gut? This is key. It says because he saw people as harassed and helpless. Interesting. That word harassed that the New American Standard translates distressed literally means to be bothered or worried. This is the action that people were going through. They were weighted down by the cares of life. And then it gives us the result. The result of this being harassed was that they were helpless. That's a powerful word. That word literally means in the original Greek to be worn out, to be stuck. Anybody here ever felt stuck in your life? Good. Thank you for raising your hand. The only honest one in the crowd. All of us can relate to being stuck. There are things that we felt stuck in. Don't miss this. Jesus says that he looked out to all of the crowds and every one of them, every single person, he said they're bothered, they're worried, they're beaten down, and they're stuck in their lives. Now, what's very interesting about this, and I told you I would get to this earlier, is that all of this occurred in Galilee. That's really important. Galilee was an area of 204 small villages and cities in northern Israel. So I'm going to show it to you on the map. So Venue and Cactus, look up at the screen at your map, and you'll notice here that this is a map of modern-day Israel. And so down there in the south, you have Jerusalem, and then the Dead Sea, that's kind of the desert area. And then as you go north in Galilee, kind of like going up to Flagstaff, you get up to the more fertile ground where the Sea of Galilee is, and where Nazareth is, where Jesus was born, or not born, but where he grew up. And and that is where Jesus is ministering right now in this text. It tells us this in chapter 9, verse 1. Now, what's the significance of that? Here it is. Galilee was not a very distressed 
nor helpless place. Anybody reading this 2,000 years ago would go, he was in Galilee and he looked out to the crowds and he saw them as harassed and helpless? I mean, what's that about? Look at how one commentator, John Broadus, in his commentary on Matthew, describes Galilee back then. See if you see what I see. He says it's beautiful and much more fertile than Judea. And in the time of Christ, had an immense population, brave, energetic, and wealthy. You see, what we know about uh, back then about Galilee is that it was occupied by mostly Gentiles, with many Jews as well, but mostly Gentiles. It had a thriving and intense economy of agricultural, agricultural fisheries, manufacturing, and trade. In fact, it was the trade route between Syria in the north and Egypt in the south. And so as one commentator again says, he says, and I quote, Jesus labored among an intelligent and actively busy people. So let me ask you, does that sound eerily familiar to you at all? Let me make the connection. Scottsdale, Galilee. Do we all see it? I'm telling you, if Jesus was here today and he had to go to anywhere close to Galilee, He'd either choose Gates Mills in Ohio or Gross Point in Michigan, or he'd choose Scottsdale. That's the equivalent of a Galilee back then. And so don't miss that in ministering in this place, Jesus wasn't fooled to a moment as to what was really going on in people's souls. I mean, you've got to believe that they looked so good on the outside back then. They did. I mean, everyone in Galilee probably had a late model chariot. <laughs> Everybody in Galilee probably got a new dirt floor every year. They all had a vacation home in Jerusalem, and they'd all have go toga parties on the weekend. I mean, it was an amazing life back then. And yet in spending time with these people, one life at a time, Jesus was able to see beyond all this outward stuff and he saw deep down into their souls. And isn't it interesting that the words he used that just didn't fit were harassed and helpless? Honestly, it'd be like you and I going after church today, like going down to Fashion Square, up to Kierlins or Scottsdale Quarter, and just walking around and saying to your buddy, hey, harassed and helpless. Look at all these people. Man, they're so harassed and helpless. Isn't it obvious? And your friend would say, no. They, they don't look harassed and helpless. They look like materialists, but they don't look harassed and helpless. But that's exactly what Jesus saw. Why? Because he knew the human condition. For you and I, we know our own souls. We know our own brokenness. We know our own woundedness. And though we feel like a mess, sometimes we're tempted to think that maybe those around us have somehow escaped that. And they haven't. When I was pastoring back in Cleveland, I had the same MO that I have here, and that is that I would uh, regularly do most of my study at home. I, I love the church, but if I try to study here, I'm constantly getting knocks on the door or phone calls, and that's fine, but I just can't concentrate. So one day I was studying at home in my home office on, on Music Street there just outside of Chagrin Falls, and a friend of mine called me on my cell phone. And he and I have gone way back. He was in my church there. And he said, uh, you know, I got something going on in this ministry I'm involved in. He was a businessman involved in ministry. Can I come by and talk to you? And, you know, I'm kind of, for most people, I would have said, uh, no, you can't. I'm, I'm working on my sermon, which is, like, really important. But for him, I said, yeah, okay, let, let us chat. I can still remember as I was waiting there in my living room, because my office was in the basement and I wouldn't hear the door. I was waiting in my living room, and I saw him drive up. 
it just reminded me what, what a paradigm of success this guy was. He drove up, in a late, drove up in a late model Mercedes, which is not uncommon here, but back there it was fairly rare. He got out, he was just dressed to the nines in this a suit, and he works out every day, and he's 10 years older than me, but he looks great and all this stuff. And, and, and he came to the door, and, and, and he ran by me some of these ministry strategies and some of the hiccups they have, and I helped him, and he was going to be on his way after about 20, 30 minutes. I walked him out to his car, and I, I said to him what I say to many people. I said, you know, okay, we just talked about ministry, but how are you doing? I said, really? I mean, you know, how you doing? And many times people will just say to me, I'm just doing fine, Pastor, thank you. Or, you know, you can pray for Aunt Tilly and her bunion or something like that, but they, they don't really tell me how they're doing. Steve looked at me and he said, well, I appreciate you asking. And he said, you know, nobody knows this outside of my wife. He said, but I, uh, I've struggled for the last five years with a debilitating depression. In fact, he said, it's so strong that there are many days that I can't even get out of bed. I just, I'm self-employed, so that makes it easier, but I just stay in bed. And he said, I don't know where it's coming from, and I don't know really what it's about, and I take medicine, and I'm in therapy, and that's not helping much. But and he said, and the reason I'm sharing this with you is that this is a particularly bad week. I, I almost couldn't drive here today. He said, no one knows about it, because if they did, they might not want to be in business with me, and they might not be in my Bible study, and some other things like that. He said, but I feel safe sharing it with you. I've experienced depression in my life pretty significantly myself. And I looked at him and I said, you know, unless somebody has been in that really, really depressed place, they don't understand it all. They just tell you to get out of bed and suck it up and do it and, you know, move on and this too shall pass. They don't understand. He actually got a tear in his eye and he said, boy, is that ever the truth. I talked with them for a few minutes more, prayed with them. We've stayed in touch ever since. Two souls connecting in that driveway in Cleveland that day. See, if you were to meet my friend here in Scottsdale, you would have no clue of any of that, would you? None. He, he would look like he's just the most successful person that you're going to meet this week. But you see, deep down, Jesus knows better, and you and I know better. They're harassed and helpless. And I got to tell you, church, this happens to me every day in Scottsdale. One of the reasons I felt good about coming to this church to be the pastor is that I'm not fooled by any of you. Not at all. I'm telling you, you guys look so good. You dress so nice. You invite me to golf and you got great country clubs. Keep inviting me. You do all of those things. You take me out to nice restaurants. You tell me how good your kids are doing. You, you tell me all these things. And honestly, I sit there and go, I don't buy any of it. I love you, and I'm glad life is… I hate those bumper stickers, as you guys know, life is good. You only see those, by the way, in Scottsdale, Maui, or Jackson. I, I mean, I, I, I was over in Egypt. Well, there's no life is good bumper stickers in Egypt. But somehow here, we've been able to sanitize things pretty well, and so we sell bumper stickers that say life is good. But the reality is, is that you and I both know that inside where things matter most, we're still a mess. And we're still battling the fall, and it rears its ugly head every moment of every day. And what I simply need you to see is in an awareness of this, Jesus saw past the facade, and he saw into people's lives. And here's the point. This allowed him to have his focus be one life at a time. See, when you get in touch with this, you don't want to start a program to deal with it. 
When you get in touch with this, you're not saying, well, how can we reach the masses? I mean, it's good to want to reach the masses. It's good to want to penetrate a community. But when you get in touch with this, you go, oh my gosh, that means everybody I meet today, everybody, whether it's a service provider or my good friend in the gated community next to me, everybody that I meet is in the same place, dealing with the same fall, just in different ways. And I don't need to be fooled at all. So I think that my ministry is gonna be one life at a time. Why? Because the need is so great. And what I need you guys to know is that that is what compels me by grace. That's it. I mean, I, I'm a mixed bag. I struggle like every other pastor does. We want to have a larger church and better ministries and all this. But when I finally weigh through the muck that's in my soul, I know that deep down, I know deep down what I want more than anything else is to see life transformation one life at a time and that maybe, just maybe, God might use me in the process. That's what I'm longing after. And that brings me to my last point that really comes right from Jesus' words here, and that is that it all begins then with you and me. Are you getting that today? It all begins with you and me. So check this out. After telling us it's all about connecting God and people, and after showing us that the need is so great, look at what Jesus goes on to say. Now, I'll warn you, you guys are going to be really tempted to diss these words because you've heard them, especially if you've been a Christian for a while. For a, you've heard these words a thousand times. But let's try to see them in new light. Look at verses 37 and 38. It says, Jesus, then he, Jesus, said to the disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Now, here's the problem I have with these words. And it's not with these words, it's what Christians have done with these words. I've been a Christian now 30 years, a pastor for just about 20, 25 years. And I've heard this passage a thousand times. And the number one response that I hear people say to this passage is, we need to call a prayer meeting. We need to pray more. We need to get prayer groups going. We need to start a ministry of prayer. We need to get people praying. And we think that the answer is to pray. Now, bear with me. Certainly, this is a call to prayer here. Certainly, this is a call from God saying to his people that you need to pray. But I think what we forget in reducing this passage simply to a call to prayer, what we forget is what we're praying for. In other words, the goal, the end goal here is not to pray. The end goal is to see something happen in God's people, to see something happen in the church that would be unique within even God's kingdom. And that something is that the church would get it, that they would get that it's all about connecting others with God and that you can only do this one life at a time. Take this passage as a whole, guys. We just learned that the end goal of Jesus is to connect people with God, teaching, proclaiming, and healing. And that we do this one life at a time, compassion, harassed, and helpless. Then Jesus says, so pray, pray that the church would get it because the harvest is plentiful. Why? Because the need is so great and the need is there. But the workers, those who really get that, those who are broken and those who are wounded and those who understand the state of their own soul and those who get the grace of God that has penetrated their lives, those kinds of Christians are so few and far between. Jesus says, pray that the church would wake up, that revival might come, that the church would get that and begin getting on the playing field in that way. See, Ezekiel said it this way in Ezekiel 22:30. God is speaking. He says, I sought for a man among them who should build up the wall and stand in the breach before me for the land that I should not destroy it, but I found 
None. Wow. Can you imagine that? In all of Israel, Israel was huge at that time. All of Israel, God says, just one, just needs one person who gets it, who's willing to stand in the breach for me and do life my way, do ministry my way. He said he found none. I think Jesus is saying something very similar here. The workers are few. And the reason is, and this we're going to wrap up with, you see, this kind of compassion, this kind of focus of the heart can only come from those who have been with God in significant ways, right? I almost mentioned this earlier, but you know, if you guys are thinking at all with me about this passage we saw earlier, some of you might have been able, if you were thinking like a lawyer, to respond by saying, well, you know, it's easy for Jesus to have compassion. He's the Son of God for crying out loud. I mean, it's easy for him to see into their hearts and see harassed and helpless. He's God. He knows that stuff. So how do you and I get to that place? Here's the deal. See, Jesus knew those things, not just because he was the second person of the Trinity, but because he was connected with the Father. Amen? He had the Father's heart. He knew the Father. And because he knew the Father as the Son, he wasn't fooled by anybody. See, you and I follow the same pathway, not being the Son of God. We follow the same pathway by, to the degree that we've been touched by God's grace, to the degree that we get his heart, to the degree that we experience him, not just have a lifestyle of Christianity, but truly experience him, is to the degree that we'll get compassion and to the degree that we'll see people as God wants us to see them, and to the degree that we'll emphasize one life at a time. See, I did this to you last week. I'll do it to you again here. Some of you are going to be tempted to say, as you walk out here today, that pastor is telling me to manufacture compassion and to drum up a view that sees others as harassed and helpless and to just try harder. That's what you're going to hear from this message. And that would just break my heart if you heard that. Because I don't think you can manufacture anything that I'm talking about today. You can't. I've tried. I've tried. I heard a message like this right when I got saved. And I said, like, Dorothy, trying to get back from Oz. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. And I'm clicking my heels together. And I'm trying to get back home. And I'm trying to get centered and all this. And I'm telling you, if you try to do that, it won't work. You'll be frustrated by Monday morning. You'll be frustrated. Here's what you can do. You can start to pine after God and thirst after Him in a way that your soul longs to, and be with that thirst. Let that thirst settle in. Let your number one desire be for God. Remember I taught you this, C.S. Lewis? First place place things, second place things. Second place are all the good things in your life. Church, family, business, hobbies, money. There's only one first place thing, and that's God. Allow first place to remain first place. And then as you thirst and pine after Him and stay in that place, You'll experience His grace. Over time, you will experience His grace. And then from that, He'll give you a heart for people. He'll give you a heart. He'll let you see the harassed and helpless. He'll let you focus one life at a time. It will happen to you as you focus upon Him in right ways. And that's what we're doing in this series. Because we're trying to help you guys focus, all of us focus on God in the right way so that as we move forward as a church, our only goal is one life at a time. Why don't you bow with me and let's pray. Father God, I thank you that in the pages of Scripture that were recorded for us in wonderful ways, we see the pattern that Jesus set for us that becomes, at least for me and I think for many of us here, what we want our lives to be about, and that is lives of compassion, lives of relationality, lives of seeing people for who they are as they are, but not wanting to leave them there. We want to them, help focus them through proclaiming and teaching and healing on the God that loves them. 
So Father, I pray that as we're trying to get our hearts more attuned to your grace and be compelled by that, that God, as we learned last week, that grace is truly the prime motivator of the human soul. And this week, as we've learned that people are the prime focus of the human soul, as we try to connect them with God, that, Father, you'd continue to nudge us to that centered place that you want us to be at. Father, I thank you for this church for 50 wonderful years and for all the stories that we could tell of what you've done in and through us in this place. I thank you for that. And I pray, Lord, that as we move forward, we keep focused on the way that Jesus did ministry so that one life at a time we can hear more and more and more stories in the years to come. Move in our midst. Breathe. Blow your spirit, we pray. And we pray this in Jesus' holy and precious name. And we say together as a church, amen. God bless you guys. We'll see you next week. <laughs>